where all my children are the light, born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right. My people are warriors, all we know is to fight, pray, they see God and everything I write. Yeah. It's been a long time. I shouldn't have left you without a dope podcast to listen to. Anyway, I never said I was a rapper. I said I got bars, but she's back in this beer. I'm not going to cuss because I'm saved. Y'all, here's a question. Did you have to cuss me out like that for taking so long to do a podcast? I know it's been a long time. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But seriously, did you have to cuss me out? Did you have to drag me in every Instagram post that didn't have nothing to do with a podcast? Did you have to do it that way? Because you sent me an encouraging word. Shout out to the three of y'all that sent me an encouraging word. But I'm back and I'm happy to be back. I am sorry. Um, I was trying to get my entire life. And I was trying to figure it out. And then I decided we are all trying to figure it out every day. So I might as well figure it out in front of you. And that's what I'm doing now. I would say Kanye Shrug, but you know, (laughs) I have a choice. Some things are choices. Lord help. Uh, Moving on. So this episode, our premiere episode of the second season is so historic, not because of me at all, but because during the CBC Foundation's annual legislative conference, which is my favorite time of the year because I get to be with my CBC family members and former staffers and current staffers. I just love that time of the year, even though y'all really wore me out this time. Um, It was incredible. And during the conference, we had an amazing conversation with our three gubernatorial candidates. And by our, I mean black, Stacey Abrams, who after winning the Democratic primary made history as Georgia's first black nominee for governor. She would also become the first black woman in history to be a governor in the entire United States. And she would also become the first black governor of Georgia. So y'all make sure you go vote on November 6th. Andrew Gillum who is the first ever black Democratic nominee for governor in Florida and would become the first black governor of the state, uh, also joined us. And then finally, Ben Jealous, who is the Democratic nominee for governor, would become Maryland's first black governor. Y'all, three black everything. Like, it was such an incredible conversation. We had fun. We had serious moments. Um, We had grounding moments and we talked about the importance of November 6th this year. I just could not be happier to have shared that critical, critical moment with them. It was incredible. The conversation was history making and groundbreaking. We talked policy. We talked music. We talked racism. And, you know, a little shade had to make its way into our convo, courtesy of your girl, not the candidates. Okay, so just charge it to me, not them. So we had a good time. Can you hear me? Hey, everybody. Hello. We need high energy. This is going to be such an amazing conversation. Yes. Um, I am still part of the CBC family. I feel like I work here sometimes. That's all right. Um, So as Dr. Scott said, the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and they cannot endorse candidates. But guess who can? Um, This will not be an endorsement conversation, but in case you missed it, I support all three of these gubernatorial candidates because their competition is just, nah, it's absolutely no. So also, so you all know this is also a live podcast recording for On One with Angela Rye. I don't know if there are any podcast listeners in the house, but we're so excited to be starting our second season with these wonderful people. So I first want to give to you all 
Uh, my good friend, I've known him for 15 years. Uh, he started off in public service as a student government association president at Gainesville High School, then went on to become SGA president at Florida A&M University. He's a rattler. Are there, any, are there some rattlers in the building? Went on to become Tallahassee City Commissioner and uh, now serves as the Tallahassee Mayor and probably will be, I would say almost likely, I'll say we'll go out and just go ahead and call him Governor Andrew Gillum. <laughs> Love you. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thank y'all. And next up, you can sit down if you want, unless you want to cheer for your colleagues. I will, yeah. Okay. Next up, we have someone who has now become a time cover girl. Um, she is the face, and I think Andrew kind of rode that wave yep. of what's happening in the South. Um, Stacey Abrams is someone who started with the New Georgia Project, ensuring that our voices would be heard. We'll talk more about that on this panel. Senate min uh, Minority Leader in Georgia. Um, and then she went on to start running this campaign, talking to folks all over Georgia about the importance of affordable health care and signing folks up herself. She rolls up her sleeve and works every day tirelessly for us. And just like with Andrew, we can go ahead and say the next governor of Georgia, ladies and gentlemen, Stacey Abrams. All right, sis. That's her job. Give me your job with her. Not least, but last to, uh, last addition to the panel is someone who we all saw really making change happen. First, as the NAACP president, he has a long resume that's amazing. Probably the most unconventional candidate up here because he hasn't served in public service. But how many of us know sometimes that's exactly what we need? Mm. Someone to change the face of things. He's running against an incumbent in Maryland, but he's run such a strong campaign, surprised a lot of folks you all, but he learned a lot working with the NAACP. We know those chapters in our communities do so much for us every day. Ben Jealous was a big part of that. The next governor of Maryland, ladies and gentlemen, Benjamin Todd Jealous. All right, well, let's get started. So first, clearly I missed the, um, the ride the blue wave memo today. Nobody wanted to tell me that this is what the press hey, team we're was Democrats. <laughs> they all have blue on in case you all are uh, colorblind like some folks I know well. Um, <laughs> but I want to just start with something really simple, but I think it's an important question. Um, and Ben, I really want to start with you because I, as I did, said in your intro, you're the most unconventional candidate. You don't come from, you know, I'm a lifelong politician, no shade. It's good. I'm glad you started at Gainesville High School, Andrew. Um, but why politics? Why politics for you and why now? You know, when, when I left the NAACP, having served as their youngest president, my blood pressure was 180. And I didn't realize I had undiagnosed sleep apnea. And I figured it out. My blood pressure now is in the 120s. And the uprisings happened in Baltimore right around that time. And I found myself in the, in the neighborhood where my mom grew up. And I realized that I've been blessed most of my life to do the thing I was best at, which is to pull people together to get big things done. 
And now that I had my health under control, I needed to get back to it. And so I'm running for governor because it's time for us to finally fully fund our schools to make sure that we all have health care and we can afford it. And to get our economy going again. And as somebody who spent the last five years since I left the NAACP investing in startups, I know that our state has a much more robust future. And I'm eager to see it happen sooner rather than later. Thank you. Thank you. Stacey, what about you? Why politics? Not why now for you, but why politics? How did you get dragged into this mess? <laughs> so, uh, first of all, I want to say thank you to Angela. Please join me in thanking Angela right here. Yes. So I grew up in Mississippi. I like to say I'm Mississippi raised and Georgia grown. Um, in Mississippi, my parents worked full time and yet barely stayed above the poverty line. My mom liked to call us the genteel poor. We had no money, but we watched PBS and we read books. <laughs> but my parents would make sure that we spent every Saturday in service. They would take us out to volunteer at soup kitchens and homeless shelters uh, because they would say, look, having nothing is not an excuse for doing nothing. And that ethos has driven me my entire life, in part because I was really frustrated by the fact that my parents and the six, my five brothers and sisters and myself, that we were the social action force for Gulfport, Mississippi. I'm like, this is very inefficient. Shouldn't someone else be doing this? And my parents said, that's called government. Government is supposed to do more to provide access because I personally believe poverty is immoral, it's economically inefficient, and it is solvable. And that has to be how we approach our... And so for me, politics became the only way to deliver on the promise of what good government can do. I started out as an attorney. I was then deputy city attorney for Atlanta. But what I found was that I couldn't make politicians do what I told them to. And so I became one myself. And the more I did that work, the more I realized that the job that can transform the lives of the incarcerated, the lives of the poor, those being pushed out of their communities by gentrification, those who haven't had health care in their lifetime, those who want to start a small business but can't get access to capital, all of those solutions rest in the hands of the governor of the state, and I want to be the person who delivers those solutions for Georgia. Yes. So Andrew, I want to I want to switch gears just a little bit, but on the same question. Um, often when you're out um, stumping, you talk about pedigree, mm. and you talk about you you don't fit the pedigree or the mold, right? We know a lot of um, at least the majority white folks are a little richer when they get into uh, politics or they have some rich family members. We see that even in the Democratic Party. But you talk about um, being raised by a father who's a construction worker, a mother who's a school bus driver, and you don't come from the right pedigree. Um, given that, Andrew, you didn't pick a, a, a route where you would make a whole lot of money. You picked no, politics. Why do that? I know, right? <laughs> Why you do that? You sound like my wife. Uh, <laughs> That's uh, my friend. RJ, I got your back, girl. She does, uh, <laughs> indeed. Uh, can I just first say that I am overwhelmingly honored uh, to be part of this panel and to have Angela Rye working us through this panel, Congresswoman Frederica Wilson, Sheila Jackson Lee, and uh, Congressman uh, Cedric Richmond. And to be uh, amongst this um, talented, uh, amazingly talented group of nominees of our respective parties to be governors of our respective states is pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible, in fact, um, I don't think for a lot of us, this moment and the significance of it yes. will seep in until some time from now. 
Um, but there were a lot of people who didn't think we deserved to be here. Uh, and some of that is our pedigree and some of it is a little bit of something else. Uh, we won't talk about that. Um, but yes, we to, will. To, well, maybe we will. <laughs> a- Angela is here. Uh, cousin Angela's in the room. But Angela's right. I mean, I, um, I grew up in Miami Dade, was born in Miami. Uh, I, I, I finished high school in Gainesville, Florida, and then I came to Tallahassee, Florida to attend, uh, to attend my version of Hillman College, uh, known as Florida A&M University. And, and I was one of five candidates in the Democratic primary, the only non-millionaire running for the Democratic nomination. You were the brokest one. The, to put it... The brokest. <laughs> To put it differently, I was a broke one. Uh, uh, in the race, we spent, Raisin spent about $6 million to the combined, uh, the combined spending of my opponents combined of over $90 million. And we ended up winning that race. Don't let anybody tell you. Don't, don't let anybody tell you. Don't let anybody tell you that you got to have the most money. Nope. Or come from a certain background or attend certain schools yeah. or uh, grow up on the right side of the track in order to be of service to people you don't. Mm-hmm. You got to have a heart to care with. You got to have a willingness to make a difference. And you got to have a plan to get something done for somebody other than yourself. Amen. And that will take you, that will take you a great distance. I think what voters saw was that I was willing to engage authentically that I didn't have much to lose and therefore I could run as myself. I didn't have to compromise my values. I didn't have to worry about somebody being disappointed because they had no expectations of me to begin with. I just had to be me. And I just got to tell you that there's liberation in that. There's, li- there's freedom in just being Freedom's able to good. be yourself. And I think that made all the difference in the world for us in the primary. And I believe that that will be the ingredients that will get us across the top on November 6th to become the Amen. next governor of Florida. <laughs> we got a fan right here. Um, that, since, that, Andrew said, since Andrew said we're not talking about this, we're going to talk about this. Oh, Lord. Um, I want us in our authenticity to talk about some of the barriers that existed even in the primary, because I think it's important that, Stacey's already laughing. I know what you're about to say. I think (laughs) it's important that the party, this blue wave that's supposed to happen, understands this formula. And what I mean by this is you have three black gubernatorial candidates who were told they could not win who were told they didn't have enough money, that were, who were told they didn't come from the right pedigree, who were told they daddies were whomever and so they should be next, who were told that we gonna run white Stacy over black Stacy, and so on and so forth. And so I, just for a moment, I know we have to unify, but in order to unify, first you gotta tell the truth. So to this very black room, I want you all to talk a little bit about what a winning formula looks like, even for statewide office, because as Andrew says it, I think best, it doesn't have to run as Republican light. So can you talk a little bit about your platforms and even some of the things that the party would have said, don't stand on that. Standing on that means you'll lose, stand your ground. Other things that you all are standing on and will continue to stand on going into the general. Sorry, it was kind of a speech. It's my soapbox question now. 
Sure. So I'll, I'll start. Um, as Angela pointed out, I did not look like my opponent, although we shared the same first name. And uh, at Netroots Nation, I made a comment in my speech. Look, I didn't have to change my hair, my skin color, or my gender to become the next governor of Georgia. And the importance of that is, look, I have natural hair. Since we're on a podcast, uh, I am of a very rich brown hue. <laughs> I'm richer. Speak, speak. <laughs> the only thing I'm rich in. <laughs> it's melanin. No comment. Let's just go on. I know. But you know what, Ben? We're still really black on the inside. Completely. Black is a state of mind, baby. Yeah. All black everything. I did, I did not mean to go anywhere near this. I know. Anyway. We were Y'all should know. Y'all should know. Stacy and I have been friends since we were 20 years old. There's a whole lot of spades playing, a whole lot of trash talking. I'm restraining myself. Go on. <laughs> Wait a minute. And Stacey, Ben just pulled a, I have black friends. That is what just happened. Oh! What is going on? <laughs> you know, Angela's been waiting to, to pull my black card since I became president. Let's just be I, I, have home, I have home training, so I'm going to get back to the subject. I know, my dad, my dad. <laughs> So... But the reason this this matters is that, you know, certainly running as a black woman in the Deep South, running for an office that no black woman has ever held, led a great deal of the traditional Democratic apparatus to assume I could not win. And then I exacerbate it by talking about my brother who is in and out of prison and has bipolar disorder and needs help and needs support from our state. I've talked about the fact that I am broke. I actually make a pretty good living, but I'm responsible for my parents, for my niece who my parents adopted when she was five days old, for my grandmother who lives with them, wow. and I owe the IRS $39,480. <laughs> I, I paid a lot of it down. But I talk about it because you cannot have a conversation about how we help working families take care of themselves if you don't know what it Preach. means to be a working yes. family. Yes, 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 yes. And so I, I, I talk ad nauseum about Medicaid expansion because the reason, one of the reasons I stepped up to take care of my parents, and I have amazing brothers and sisters, I just had the better salary. And we know that when one of us gets a job, we all get a good job. Yeah. <laughs> and I was able to step up when my parents would have been forced after Hurricane Katrina onto Medicaid, I would not let my parents lose their health insurance. And I've become their primary source of revenue outside of you know, the jobs that they've had. And my parents are Methodist ministers now, so they're like permanently poor. But, <laughs> but my, my point being that we have to understand, especially in our communities, that our expectations have to be calibrated to having people who know what our lives are like. You cannot solve a problem you don't understand. And while we don't have to have the exact same problems, we have to acknowledge the authenticity of the challenges we face, and you have to have solutions that are actually achievable in order to solve them. But what I think both Ben and Andrew did so spectacularly in their communities and in their campaigns is not only talk about the problem and talk about the solution, but we may, ha we may not have the pedigrees that they expect, but we have the credentials for solutions that no other candidates like us have ever had. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, That's right. So, Ben, to you, I would I would ask the, the same question. Some of the things that um, 
maybe the establishment didn't expect for you to have some of the challenges you've experienced, some of the challenges you'll face yeah. going into the general. Or the well, she, well, yeah, the, the, the first thing the, the establishment tried to do is try to, to actually disown me from my state. And I had to just explain to him, because he's you know, like, what high school did you go to? I said, well, my mom desegregated Western High School for girls. I tried to give him a clue where I was headed. And then I decided to make it plain. I said, look, I didn't have the opportunity to grow up here because my parents' marriage was against the law and it was illegal for them to return to the state. I was shipped back here every summer because this is where home is and this is where my family is. And when your family's from West Baltimore, the one thing you never do is forget who your family is or where you're from or what your responsibility is once you've done better to make sure that everybody does better. And so, and then they started asking questions, you know, they're like, well, you know, um, tell us about your success. I said, well, look, my mom grew up in the housing projects. I became a Rhodes Scholar. I can't explain how you get from one to the other without the unions that made sure that my grandparents had a good wage, had enough money to pay for me to go to college. And they're like, no, 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 you're not supposed to mention unions if you're running for governor. South of the Mason-Dixon. Well, I've been a union member myself. It also helped me. And so I just said, look, I'm going to run as who I am. And if that's a little more complex than your picture of what a candidate for governor should be, so be it. Because all of us live lives that are way more complex than anybody's caricature. But I'll be clear, I am here to run for office because there's work that's undone that my family's been involved in for 80 years in Baltimore to make sure that zip code does not determine your destiny. And as long as I have neighbors, as long as I have family members who feel like they're trapped in their zip code, I'll be doing the same work that my grandma did when she was a social worker in Maryland and helped train Barbara Mikulski. And that's serving the people of our state and helping us all find our way to a better place. Mm. And Andrew, um, there was a point in your campaign uh, where another uh, young black man was shot in Florida, Marquise McLaughlin. And you started hammering hard on the importance of a state of emergency or a, um, emergency stay on the stand your ground law and how important it would be for you to repeal it as governor. There are a number, yes, yes. There are a number of, of folks in the party, um, people who text message me like, tell your friend, this is Hold the up. death knell for his campaign. You know, because you were doing something for us so that your sons could survive in the state of Florida. Talk about why that was more important to you yeah. than getting that little nudge of support from the party. Yeah, I mean, so, and there's a common theme, I think, in, in, in all of our stories, which is uh, we didn't run from our stories and our experiences. It informed our public exactly. policy. Our, our lived experiences really informed it. And on Stand Your Ground, um, my position on it didn't change from when I spoke up after uh, the death of Trayvon Martin. Um, we spoke up resoundingly. We said that stand your ground law has no place in civilized society and we didn't make apologies for it. But, but when, when this one came around and again, I was in a five way race, so it was great to have the other field start to speak out on these issues that we've been talking about for so long. Um, it was strength and partnership. Uh, this one, this one struck me a little bit differently because when Trayvon Martin happened, even though I myself am a black man, obviously, 
Um, I didn't have two sons uh, at the time. Uh, and so it really did hit me a little bit differently. And if you don't know the fact pattern of the case, uh, Marquise McLaughlin was driving home with his partner, Brittany, and their three children, uh, one five-year-old, uh, a three-year-old, and a few-month-old. And as they would do sometimes on their way home, they pulled off into a circle, uh, 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 the bodega, uh, Circle 8, um, and Marquise got out of the car with his five-year-old son. They pulled into a handicapped spot. Um, he got out, went inside the store, took his five-year-old son with him, and left Brittany and the two babies in the car. Well, across the street from this Circle uh, 8 uh, is a gun shop. And there's a guy who perpetually kind of hangs out in this space and has a reputation for antagonizing people. So he decides to come over, start banging on the window where Brittany is and the kids are seated, circles the car, banging, pushing on the car, cursing at Brittany in front of her children. Someone lets Marquise McLaughlin know what was going on inside. He comes out, sees the man next to his uh, family, threatening them, and he shoves them to the ground. He then takes a few steps back as this man then reaches for a weapon, pulls it out. And in front of his five-year-old child, his life is snuffed out. I went to the site of this location when I was in the area for a rally. Afterwards, I just wanted to go by and see what was up. And while I was standing there for probably 15 minutes, no less than two or three cars had come and pulled into this same handicapped spot where the blue paint had been kind of erased away, you could tell that this was a ritual, not necessarily judging right or wrong, that so many times people had probably done before. And that the only difference was is that this guy today decided that he was going to uh, pick a fight. And in my state where I live, the law is such that you can go antagonize, push the bear, start a fight, and then hide behind, stand your ground when somebody responds. If anybody had a right to stand their ground that day, it was Marquise McLaughlin, Brittany, and those three children. But the law was such that there was no penalty to be paid for that. Until we began to raise our voices in March and we stood up and even for a short, short while we sat in and the state attorney, because the sheriff said because of stand your ground, he could not make an arrest. The state attorney intervened and said, I'm going to bring charges in this case. Could you imagine? Could you imagine just for a moment the shoes had been reversed? That the man going around the corner and around the car banging on the window and yelling and screaming at a white woman in the car with two white children. Um, and the husband comes out and shoves him to the ground. The black man pulls a gun and takes a shot. I'm not trying to be sensational right. about this. I just want to speak the truth. Mm -hmm. I just want to speak the truth. Mm -hmm. We all know, we all know that race still matters in this society. And the challenge that we have, frankly, as three black candidates running in majority states that are not majority black, uh, certainly um, um, uh, in our cases, is that we have to figure out a way to communicate these things in such a way that even the majority white population can have some empathy for it. Right. Mm -hmm. 
um, that they can understand because I don't believe all white people are racist. I certainly don't believe the majority of the people in my state are racist. I just believe that we all have a set of certain experiences that color our perspectives. And that it's important for people of courage to be able to speak up when these moments present themselves, even at the risk of sometimes not being able to politically prevail or politically win, but to speak up because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. I did it because it was the right thing to do. Um, which, yeah, which is an exception uh, these days, too. You all are exceptional candidates in lots of ways. Um, since you talked about race and not all white people are racist, facts, but... Y'all's opponents, except for Ben, I think maybe, uh, they had a little problem with race. Mm. There have been some ads that have come out. Um, Andrew, I was ready to fight, like shadow box the air, (laughs) for real. Like, if you all haven't heard it, you should listen to it. An Idaho uh, KKK or whatever funded a robocall making him sound crazy. Like, we might even play it in the podcast, but it's like, my name's Andrew Gillum. It sounded a hot mess. And you you want to laugh to keep from crying. Like, it's it's that ridiculous. Stacey, race has been, you know, a, a focal point of, um, of your, you know, the race against your opponent, too. But the race has been injected um, into your races. Andrew, the first day the candidate says, tell Florida not to monkey this up. And they're like, people always say that. No fool, they say monkey around, right? And they're like, wrong preposition. No, wrong everything, Ron DeSantis. But I think for a moment, I think it's really, really important for people to understand the distinction. Um, Stacy, for you in particular, I, I want to start with you, Andrew, because you just finished. The race is neck and neck. Yes. And so we can say that, like, all white people aren't racist and everybody in Georgia is not racist. But the only thing that can explain why you're neck and neck with a bigot is racism and white privilege. You don't have to say those words. I said that. But let's let Stacey answer this part. Because I think, no, I think it's important. Like, we're not going to ever get to move forward as a country from racism and the vestiges of slavery until we really take this head on. So, uh, here, here's how I, thought, I take a, think about it. Race is a marker. We use it to tell ourselves stories about who we are and the people we're around. Mm -hmm. We do the same with gender. And when race and gender are intersected, the stories become even more complicated uh, on both sides of of the gender conversation. I do not assume that every aspersion cast on me by my opponent is based in race. But I know that when you have a tap dancing icon in the commercial against me, that you could have picked a ballerina. You could have picked somebody doing (laughs) merengue. You picked a tap dancer, <laughs> and and there was something implicit in what was done that is that either calls to what you think or calls to something you haven't examined. And part of the challenge with the conversation of race is that it imputes, as Andrew just eloquently laid out, it is imputed into so many other decisions that we make. We have conversations about race when we never use the words. And when we have policies that aren't grounded, so an example for me is one of the things I'm pushing is for a $10 million small business financing fund. Georgia has uh, a lot of laws on the books that allow for minority contracting. And yet 1% of the contracts go to minority firms in a lot of different ways. You have to kind of take Atlanta out of the picture. Part of the challenge there is that a lot of these minority firms can't get the contract because they can't get any capital. Well, in the Great Recession, 
Georgia lost more banks than any other state in the nation. The majority of those banks were community banks in low income or communities of color. And so when those banks disappeared, they didn't come back post recession, mm -hmm. which means that yes, you can qualify for an SBA loan, but if no one will write you the check, it's, it's worth nothing. My opponent has said, well, you don't need a small business financing fund because it's not going to solve the problem. And even if it would solve the problem, you've got banks that will do that. No, not every community has a bank that will do that. And race is implicit in the conversation because if you live in the wrong zip code without a bank, your business will remain a dream because you will never get the capital you need to get it off the ground. And we know there's a direct correlation between Main Street businesses, those small businesses, not the high tech ones, but the mechanic and the barber shop and the cafe. And if they can borrow the money to buy the shop or to buy that extra piece of equipment or to lease that next piece of land, we know that when small businesses succeed, communities succeed. And when small businesses struggle, communities struggle. If you don't understand that there's a racial element to banking in America in 2018, how can you solve the challenge right. of the lack of access to jobs for so many of our communities? Race is embedded in how we have to think about these things. It is not the only dimension, but it is a critical dimension that we have to confront and acknowledge because otherwise we cannot solve these problems. You know, part of, um, um, <clears throat> you know, the challenge that all of us have to face in this is, uh, we have to talk about this conversation and at the same time try to hold our people yes. uh, so that we can win these elections. Because ultimately the goal here is to ensure that we can address the problems that you've heard discussed on this dais. Um, and it just reminds me of the role that each of us have to play in this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, um, I will never dismiss the role that race plays in society. Um, I live it every single day. And in politics, it feels like it's on steroids yeah. uh, that you live it every single day out loud. But it's a line you can't cross and calling it out because then you've called the race card or you've pandered in some way or you're trying to send some secret signal to somebody. Mm -hmm. Well, so far in my race, it seems my opponent and all of his friends are the only ones trying to send secret signals, but they're not so secret. They're actually oh. pretty monkey it up and uh, 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 you know, neo-Nazi phone calls and a Republican committee woman down in Orlando sent out an email saying or a Facebook post, whatever. Gillum is quoted as saying he's going to win so that he could have reparations for his people. I've never said <laughs> I, I've been elected 15 years. I've never said anything, uh, not even resembling something like that. But this is what I know for sure. And this is why we have to be careful not to certainly for those of us who are candidates, kind of fall into the trap. My grandmother used to put it this way, uh, never, ever, ever wrestle with pigs because you both get dirty, but the pig likes it. So <laughs> I, there are Bye, some, of, some of y'all will get that tomorrow, right? <laughs> and for the press covering it, I'm not calling my opponent a pig. This, I, the, am, I, this, am, I, I am, I am, I am, I am. This I am. Is, I, I'm simply, you know, using a figure of speech to say that when we go down into that barrel, yeah. um, if they're able to make our races, no pun intended, but about race, that's one we can't win. Yeah. We don't have the numbers. Well, and that's the goal. I mean, the, the RGA the is attacking all of us and their ads against me. A very distinguished old law professor just had to felt moved to write a letter to the Baltimore Sun describing as blatantly racist. And their goal is to get us to go low when they go low. But we have to go high. 
And the reason we have to go high is because that's the way that you lead people out of where they're stuck right now. You travel, our state's really like four states. We've got Western Maryland, we've got the Eastern Shore, we've got the Baltimore region, we have the D.C. suburbs of the state. And when you listen to families of all colors, of every faith in each of those regions, like 80, 85% of their issues are the same. And we just have to understand that you know, race is used as a tool to divide us. My grandma's family's been in this region for like almost 400 years. She descends from Thomas Jefferson's grandmother's other's, other grandchildren that were her slaves. And she, she would always remind me, she'd say, baby, you know, before there were slave rebellions, there were colonial rebellions, and there were African slaves and Irish indentured servants rebelling together. And the first was in Gloucester, Virginia, and what sparked it was an edict from the king to the governor, to the people on that dock where they rebelled, that said, in summary, and your status shall convey to your children. In other words, from the very beginning of the American experiment, we at the bottom of the pyramid of our economy were always willing to endure a lot so long as we could hope that our children might be better off. And the moment that they informed us that our children would be no better off and possibly worse, we, the tradition was we would rebel and we would rebel together. Those lines of race didn't matter so much on that dock and they don't matter so much to the people of this region now, but you gotta be clear that there's a way for us to all come together and do better. And that's what our campaigns are all about. Um, so Andrew, uh, right now you're in a get at me dog battle with Donald Trump. I'm not. <laughs> he is though. That's, that's he is crazy. though. He's, it's, it's, a, it's a get at me dog I at symbol on Twitter. I it's a get at me dog. Well, I'm calling it that. I'm not saying you said get at me dog, although I really wish you would. That would go no. so viral and be so amazing. <laughs> like you guys should post Andrew said in this forum, get no, at me dog. No, do not do that. <laughs> Don't do that. Just say it one time. Just be like, no. <laughs> well, here, so here's the thing, though. One quotable. So Donald Animal Trump farm. loves to tweet about black people he's afraid of. And apparently, Andrew's the new black guy he's afraid of. Yes. So he keeps, he keeps talking about Andrew. So Andrew was like, next time, mention me, which is a get at me dog moment. I didn't say get at me dog. Okay, what'd you say? Say it your way, Andrew. I simply said, the president is, I the president is said. now making a habit of coming for me, right? Uh-huh. And uh, she's getting me close to get at me dog, yeah. but I'm not going. Record. <laughs> so he gives this speech in Montana where he's mischaracterizing me after he's tweeted at me on Facebook, except, and I know, on Twitter rather, yeah. uh, uh, and I know y'all know he knows how to use Twitter. He lives on it. But when he mentioned my name, he wouldn't at me. And you understand what at me is, right? So I, I can only see it if somebody in the stream, you know, asks me or I see it or, or sends it to me. So we just simply said, you know, Mr. President, my name is Andrew Yellow. <laughs> and I will be the next governor of the great state of Florida. Yes. And Andrew, in other and, words. And the next time that you mention me, just at me. Which is what? Come at me, dog. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Andrew. Look, if that no, line, if on, that line loses me this race, you're going to employ me not. for the rest of my life. That's fine, because no, I'm, I'm confident you'll win. But here's the thing. <laughs> you almost just lost your black card. 
Because instead of get at me, dog, you said come at me, dog. <laughs> Look, he's reaching across the aisle. I get <laughs> 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 You know, don't listen to what they say about these people. These people are amazing. This is great. Um, that was for Donald Trump. Get at me, dog. Okay. So, my other question for you all. Um, I moderated a panel yesterday with Senator Doug Jones. And um, ooh, it got quiet. Um, Senator, did you say Obama? I'm going to come back to Obama in a minute. Um, but not right now. So, Senator Doug Jones... Um, was on this panel. You all know he won 98% of black women in Alabama turned out to keep a pedophile out of uh, the Senate. But um, somehow, Doug Jones has uh, become conflicted. Um, there is a, a very important Supreme Court nomination we're all following with Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, we've watched Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, who are the chairs of ALC this year. Yes, yes appropriately drag the hell out of Brett Kavanaugh in these hearings. Um, however, Doug Jones, 98% of black women, I think it was 95% or 93% of black men, is saying he's not sure if he's going to um, oppose the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. He's not sure how he's going to vote. Um, sitting up here with you all who are authentically yourselves know how you ran in the uh, in the primary know how you'll run in the general because you're not going to change for anyone what would you say to someone who won statewide with so much support from black folks like us about brett kavanaugh like what would you say to doug jones senator doug jones what would you say look at you ben what's that face <laughs> well you know Ben was saying are you kidding me what are you saying no, no, look. Doug Jones only has his seat because of the Voting Rights Act. Doug Jones only has his seat because of the Civil Rights Movement. Doug Jones is in his seat to do right by all the people of Alabama. And it's clear that Kavanaugh will not do right by all the people of Alabama, whether it's women or people of color, mm -hmm. frankly, small business people fighting with corporations. And so it's incumbent upon Doug Jones to dig deeper into his more courageous self. It's also incumbent upon the people of Alabama to inject courage into him. Because politicians don't give the people courage. It's the people who give the politicians courage. Mm -hmm. And I'm proud of the NAACP of Alabama and of this country and the way that they stood up in those hearings and they stood up to Kavanaugh. And I would hope that if my old colleagues down in Alabama aren't putting some courage into Doug Jones right now, that they get to it. That's right. Thank you. <clears throat> you know, I would... Stacey? Nope. Say yeah, I, sorry, Andrew, because no. I said 98% of black women. Come on, black women, tell us what he needs. No, to I, I, I completely agree with Ben. I will say this. There is something unique about the Deep South. Um, you know, my colleagues, you know, there's Maryland, there's Florida, then there's the Deep South. And Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Louisiana, a special. Kind Northern of, Florida. You can give them Northern Florida. I know. <laughs> as long as it's Florida, it's Florida. Um, but, but, but here's what I mean. The, the, the concentration of ignominy, the poverty, the racism, the lack of access, the, the amplification of every evil that happens in the Deep South 
cannot be ignored. And Doug Jones knows this because he fought against it. And I think Ben is absolutely right about injecting courage, but there's also the responsibility of remembering how you got where you are. Yes. And as a black woman who helped drive support to Doug Jones from Georgia, I recognize the, the tendency to want to not to create waves or to respect the process, but the process has been revealed to be deeply flawed and wholly and I think completely inauthentic. Mm -hmm. This is a man whose entire legislature, whose entire judicial record rests on questionable facts. And he has very clearly stated he has no interest in maintaining the very lives that helped put Doug Jones into office. I, I've met Doug Jones. I like Doug Jones. And I want to continue to stand with him because in many ways he is exactly what Alabama has to have. But we cannot live on memory. We have to live on progress. Hey. And there is no progress to be made with the confirmation of a man who will strip the rights of women from them, especially black women who are hanging on to reproductive rights by the very thinnest of nails. That cannot be allowed. No, I, uh, so I'll align myself with uh, the, colleague, uh, uh, the comments of my colleagues, but what I was going to try to relate this to is the fact that uh, Senator Jones is, I think, in some ways operating from the old playbook yes. around electoral politics. Yes. Um, and it's the same uh, playbook that has been pervasive, I think, in our states. The, the going philosophy is, is in order to win, you got to be Republican light. In order to win a state like any of ours, you can't uh, talk too much about poverty, about criminal justice reform. Uh, God knows avoid entitlements at every opportunity. Um, don't get too close to this demographic or that demographic that you kind of have to walk this uh, straight, um, um, uh, you know, um, not too controversial line, if you will. Um, and I think what we're trying to prove in our races is that you can talk about poverty and criminal justice reform and paying teachers what they're worth and corporate tax rate and all of these other issues that that frankly matter. Um, and guess what? You give voters a reason to go out and vote for something and not just against something. Exactly. Amen. Right. And I think that's where we that's that's how if we're going to win and I believe we will. The way we are going to win is by going to voters and telling them that. Not only do we see them and that we hear them, but we have a plan to do something about their condition, their situation, their circumstances. Uh, the candidates that are the ones that have to play these close margins, who have to be uh, uh, unoffensive and, 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 and basically shrink from who they are, are playing with the marbles that are on the table. We're trying to bring more marbles to the game Absolutely. by bringing and engaging those voters who between 2012 and 2016, we had what? Uh, how many uh, tens of, of, of millions that didn't vote between uh, six million? There were six million fewer voters in the 16 election than there were in the 12. Uh, fewer than half the people in this country are voting. Now, I have to believe that part of that is they're not seeing themselves reflected. They don't hear the issues that they care about. Yes. The, they, they don't trust the elected officials who are before them to deliver on the promises that they're making. And so they choose not to, to turn out. And some of that might be is that the difference between the Democrat and the Republican are so minuscule hey, that you free. might as well let it go. Yeah. There'll be no yeah. difference. Yeah. 
And so we're actually running on a belief that if we say who we are, what we believe, even for voters who don't agree with us 100% of the time, they'll be with us because they believe we believe in what it is that hey. we're saying and what yeah, exactly. we're doing. Preach. I mean, I will I, say one, one example of that, you know, I talked about gun safety and responsible gun ownership. And I celebrated the fact that I've only gotten D's and F's from the NRA. But I also told them, look, I learned how to shoot a shotgun from my grandmother, my great-grandmother, Moo Moo. I know how to shoot a shotgun, which means I know you don't point it at someone in a commercial. I know that your behavior- Our opponent did that. Yes. <laughs> but a lot of folks, in fact, it is, it is a constant conversation that I am breaking all of the rules of being mm -hmm. a Southern Democrat by talking about gun safety. My question is, why aren't you? When children have to be in active shooter drills in America, Absolutely. that's a problem. Yeah. But I, I was in Dahlonega, Georgia, which is no one's example of a liberal bastion of anything, um, for the standard, um, the March for Your Lives. And when I'm there, this woman comes up to me and she takes my hand and, and she's a, a middle-aged white woman and her husband is standing behind her silently and she keeps letting people get in front of her. And finally, it's just me and her and her husband. And she takes my hand and she squeezes it. And she tells me that her daughter was at Georgia Tech and she'd gotten a call from her daughter saying she was depressed and that she was just anxious and she really needed to talk to her parents, but they weren't, they weren't there to get the message. And then she left her dorm and she walked the three blocks from Georgia Tech to a pawn shop where she bought a gun. And because Georgia doesn't have a waiting period before her mom and dad could get the message and drive the hours to get to her, that young woman killed herself. Oh my God. And her mom is holding my hand, squeezing it, saying, please God, be a governor who will do this and will save someone else's child. There is no lack of humanity in saying that we can pass smart gun laws in the United States right. of America. And because I have that conversation, I can have conversations with people who never thought they would vote for a Democrat, but they will vote for someone who says, I will save your child's life. That is how we win elections, by having, as, as Andrew said, having authentic conversations where I'm not afraid. I voted enough times against gun laws that I couldn't, I couldn't fake it if I wanted to. <laughs> and so why not embrace wholeheartedly who I am and what I hold to be true? And why don't I trust the people of Georgia enough to know that if I tell them the truth, they will believe it. Mm -hmm. And if they believe it, they will vote. That is how you win elections, not by pandering to what you hope somebody thought they may have believed yesterday. Mm -hmm. Stacey, you, you raised some really important points, um, Andrew, Ben. Uh, I think this is a historic conversation and we know that. Um, it's a historic moment with three black Democratic nominees. Um, first, I want to just acknowledge, uh, looking at Ebony, thanks to Mama and Papa Rai who are in the room, um, and remembering when Doug Wilder won his election and become, becoming the first black governor in modern history for us, right, uh, while we were alive. And just knowing the significance of this moment that we could have three at the same damn time. <laughs> you know, like that is such an incredible, awe-inspiring thing. And so I, I want to know from you all. Don't say it too loud. What? Three at, all at once. You know. <laughs> they already scared. Get at me, dog. <laughs> but, um... I, I just, I, the gravity of this moment and um, trying to empathize with what you all might feel, it has to feel like a ton of pressure. 
Um, the community is counting on you because we got a fool in the White House. Y'all also got some fools for some opponents, though. Um, no, seriously, like straight out bigots in some instances, more than we hear today, again. But I, I want to know what this pressure is like for you and how you can use it um, to help fuel you, to help energize you every day, knowing, frankly, the weight of the community, not just in Florida, not just in Georgia, not just in Maryland, is banking on your success. So how are you using that to motivate you to win? Win, 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 win. Everything else, I didn't say it. Okay. Y'all right. need to, really? No, I, Jay. We got you, we got you. She got it at the back. Eugene, can you play it? Like, they need to know the song. We gonna play it we go out. <laughs> so one way I'm trying to use the energy is to reflect it back and to say, go vote. Uh, because if you vote, we win. Um, the polls in my state are showing us a little bit ahead, but I told the folks, dismiss with the polls because the night before election, I was seven points behind my them? opponent. Tell them for the people in the back. I, I, I was, I was seven, seven points behind yeah. my opponent and we finished four points ahead. I didn't, I didn't close the gap by 11 overnight, right? Um, there was something sitting sediment there that wasn't getting captured in the mix, right? But we also know that we've seen polls uh, uh, circa uh, 2016 that had one candidate winning the night before, and the next day we woke up in a nightmare, Yeah. right? And so forget the polls, man. If there was a... If I could put a billboard all over my state, it would say dismiss with the polls, go vote, go organize, go register, turn out voters and let's win these races. We got the numbers. We got the numbers. You know, the question is, what are we going to do with it? Now, I know Angela's getting at something much deeper. And the truth is, is over the course of this race, I've tried to avoid going too deep on too deep on the history and the significance of it because it could feel crushing and so you know, the, the pressure of it. I almost think about, um, you know, Michelle Obama's words do ring very present with me, particularly when we're under pressure about, you know, going high when they go low. I, I don't want y'all to mistake us. We're the candidates. And so we have to follow that advice for some of y'all. When they go low, you got to go to the mat. Right. You 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 got to make it plain. That would be Angela's assignment. You, you have to make it plain what is acceptable and what lines will not be crossed in these races. Wait a minute, Andrew, just so we're clear, because we don't believe the polls, but we do believe in a big focus group like this. How many of you all will go to the mat if somebody gets at them, dog? Stand up. That's, Stand up. That's real. That's good. That's good. I'm, I'm, look, I'm <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> I'm just glad I'm glad I'm glad that we know what it means because because they're going to try us in every kind of yes. way, even in ways they already have, even in ways that um, that will be insulting to our very person. Yeah. Mm. And we're going to have to figure out ways over the course of these next 56 days to ensure that we don't get wrapped up in a debate that takes us off our mission, That's off right. our goal, right. off of what we've got to get done. That's our job. Yes. But as the community, you all have to, you got to put the line in the sand. Yeah. You've got to say, if you do that again, we're going to, yeah, look, we're going to show out in ways that you've never seen us show out before. Right? That, that, that's what our response has to be. I'm not talking about physical anything. Right. I'm all I'm saying, physical contact with the ballot. 
and moving some other people and making sure that people know that their 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 parameters here that you don't get to go beyond. But I'm also reminded through this through the through the example of President Obama and First Lady Obama is that they were governing for the ages. Mm. As the first, they recognized that you know they were being measured and monitored not just in the moment that they were in. But by their example, they created the possibility for just an election cycle later for three African-Americans to become Democratic nominees of major states in the United States for the ages. So we got races to win. So we're not we, we, we try to stay focused on the present, the here and the now. But in the recesses of my mind, I'm very clear about what this race means for my children and the children whose names I can't call, right? whose faces I won't recognize, uh, and neighborhoods that they may never have the opportunity to physically rub shoulders with me or for our hands to touch or cross, but I know what our race means to them and for their futures. And so I'm so determined, y'all. I'm so determined around what we've got to do to win these races, to, to, uh, to not only have electoral victory for the sake of being able to win, but more importantly, winning, because I'm very clear about for whom we are standing in the gap on behalf of, right? That's, that, 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 when we lose these elections, in my state, 700,000 people don't get access to health care. Uh, 1.7 million people don't have a right to vote because we've got a Jim Crow era policy around rights restoration and they can't get access to it. And my state losing these elections mean that we have kids in our community, 60 percent of, uh, of black kids are graduating and about 40 percent of them are not graduating high school. So we're clear about for whom we're standing in the gap on behalf of. But we got to win these races in order to transform societies, transform communities, transform individual lives. Um, that ultimately then get to change the future trajectory of not only our communities, but our entire states. Mm. Right. And it's a it's a big burden. It's a significant one. It's one that's not lost on me, but it's one that we've got to remember again in the recesses of our mind. But go to work right now, today, doing everything that we can to win these races so that we can change society. Mm -hmm. It's the bigger meta goal for us. Stacy or Ben? You know, uh, 1988, I was 15 years old. I was a precinct captain for Jesse Jackson. <laughs> 2008, Buddy Mon and I, we raised about $12 million to help Obama win the primary states. Here we are in 2018. And it's clear that we stand on the shoulders of a lot of folks who have come before us. I was on the phone with Deval Patrick the other day. And Duvall talked about the greatest introduction he ever got was from Doug Wilder, who simply said, there's not worth much being the first unless there's a second. Mm -hmm. What's instructive to me is when these last less than 60 days is how each of them won. Each of them won by speaking to the, to the deeper common yearning to come together and do better. Wilder's race came right out of Jesse Jackson's race. Jesse Jackson, he launched his campaign with a bunch of Asian American working class folks in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. He had 
white iron workers chanting, run, Jesse, run, mm -hmm. when he went down to the shipyards. He had an LGBT formation inside the Rainbow Coalition when that was still taboo in the Democratic Party as a whole. And that's really, yes, there's so many shoulders we stand on in our community, absolutely. But we also stand on the shoulders of a whole rainbow of people across our country who understand in their soul that we could be leaping forward if we were simply willing to come across all those lines they say are supposed to divide us. I don't think it's any mistake that we're all Generation X, or Andrew might be on the borderline, I'm not sure. Um, but, we, but we grew up as part of a generation where we were blessed to simply be more inclusive than any generation that came before us. And also see example after example from Doug Wilder and David Dinkins and Harold Washington all the way forward. Mm -hmm. And that's why I want to take a moment also just to, because I didn't at the beginning, just to say thank you to the Congress people who spoke before us, Congresswoman Wilson, Congresswoman Jackson Lee, Congressman Richmond, and, and, and also Dr. Elsie Scott. She stands on the shoulders of a guy named Ron, oh, where's his name just went out of my head, Ron. Walters. Ron Walters. Ron Walters, when Stacy and I were 20 years old, we were speakers at the March on Washington in 1993. Mm -hmm. A guy named Derek Johnson that runs the NAACP took me over to meet Ron Walters. Ron had been architects for all those campaigns in 88 and 89. And he made it clear then, 25 years ago, that all our generation needed to focus on was leading this country, leading our states, leading our cities, because the voters were, well, were way ahead of where the politicians were. Mm. And Dr. Walters was right. He's no longer with, with us. I wanna thank Dr. Scott for continuing his tradition and thank him for all he did in this town at Howard University, at the University of Maryland, to inspire generations of folks this country has no idea just about what's about to happen as far as the transformation of leadership. We've had the first trans candidate win in Maryland, the first trans candidate win in Virginia. Mm -hmm. They stand on Doug Wilder's shoulders too. And we stand on their shoulders because our country is healing right now. Even as Donald Trump tries to divide us, let us never forget that he represents a minority of the country, a backwards way of thinking, and we represent the majority of the country that's intent on going forward. Okay, so as we get ready to wrap up, I wanna take you all to November 6, 2018. And the poll result, polling results are starting to come in, Wait. and it's looking really good. Uh, you all get favorable results. You go out to um, give your acceptance speeches. But before you speak, what is the song that plays? <laughs> <laughs> and don't just name the song, give us a little bit, since they think we tap dance anyway, Stacy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> just give them a little bit. I'll start. <laughs> it's gonna be amazing, Grace. Uh, yeah! yeah! Come on, church! Come on, church! And and here's why. I mean, when Grace, you not gonna sing that? Oh! Uh, Come on, little Barack. <laughs> I'm good. Okay, she's good. I tried. 
so I grew up in the church. My, my parents, before they became ministers, they were just always preachy. Um, but, but they became formal ministers <laughs> when I was 15. And they raised us with an ethos of not faith as a, as a conversation, but as a practice. That faith is an act of, it's an act of will. You've got to do something about your that's faith. Right. And that's why, you know, you know, when I think about that song, it is about redemption, but it, that means it's about stumbling. It's about making mistakes. Mm -hmm. And God knows I've made some. I know that everyone I want to stand for as governor has made some. And the notion of grace is that we're still allowed to try when failure has become too present. When I think about why this is so meaningful, uh, I was on an earlier panel and I, I pointed out, you know, it's governors who decide our lives more than the president, more than the mayor. Mm -hmm. Mass incarceration didn't start in 1994. It started with Ronald Reagan in California yeah. when he was governor. Stand your ground did not start. Washington. It started in Florida with Jeb Bush. The erosion of the social safety net that we are trying to knit back together started with Tommy Thompson when he was the governor of Wisconsin. And Jim Crow was not federal law, it was state law. That is what grace is about. It is about having three people who are standing up and saying that for the Muslim community, we see you and we will stand with you. It is saying to the Latino community that is being harassed and harangued that we have you. It's saying to the Asian community that sometimes feels unseen, we're there for you. But it's also about saying to every person, like my brother, like my cousins, who do not see that there is a tomorrow sometimes, that grace has a sweet sound, and it sounds like victory on November the 6th. All right. Come on, Stacey. All right. All right. All right. I love it. Well, I let oh. me just, I, okay. I I so hate to take this secular. Uh, <laughs> Come on, Andrew. I'll bring it back to the church my, for you when, you, when you're done. <laughs> my theme song is gonna be "Walk It Like I Talk It." <laughs> <laughs> Where's the beat drop? <laughs> okay, go, Andrew. <laughs> No, I. Do you uh, guys, you guys know how the song goes? Oh, come on! No, we're not doing that. No, do it! No, come on, no. do it! Come on, come on y'all! No, listen. Talk it like I talk it. Let me tell you why. Come on! Oh, no, no. Hey! Hey! Okay. <laughs> so, no, the the truth. I, I how you gonna say walking like it's like calm down, guys? No, no, calm no. Down. We adopted it. What happened? We adopted Second it. Second black card revocation moment of the day, Andrew. Aha. Uh -huh. okay. Um. <laughs> But, but walk it like I talk it. And we just sort of accidented upon that over the course of the trail. Um, we were in a debate and, you know, everybody's talking around and in circles. And uh, I was trying to think of a way to communicate the essence of who I was without having to do a diatribe. And I just said simply, I walk it like I talk it. And, and part of and, and it sounds obviously, you know, real silly. Um, but part of it for me is, is when we talk about um, access and affordability to health care for all, uh, for me, that's not a talking point mm -hmm. because I knew what it meant to wait for the mobile dental clinic to come through the neighborhood in order to have my teeth cleaned. Um, when I talk about people being able to work one job instead of multiple jobs as a way to make ends meet, 
I'm reminded of my mother who was a school bus driver, my dad who was a construction worker. And when Florida got rid of mandatory summer schools, my mother became a presser in the dry cleaners. And then she would clean houses on the weekend. Um, I remember watching my mother and father trade between which bills they could pay before something got cut off. Um, when I um, talk about uh, education and paying teachers what they're worth, I'm constantly reminded of the words of the educators that I encountered along my way who told me I could when I thought I had reached my limits. The ones who told me that they thought I was smart and that I should take honors or AP courses. These are the people who, in my opinion, do the most difficult work that exists on earth. Amen. The shaping, the molding, the inspiring of minds of our most precious gifts, our children. And so I think part of the secret, if there is a secret as to why we were able to break through all the noise in our respective primaries and are now well positioned to be governors of our respective states is that, yes, we've walked it like we talked it, but more than anything, it is that this is a real lived experience. We don't need anybody to do a poll. We don't need a messaging expert. I don't need somebody to hold a thermometer up to the air and tell me what the temperature is. It's too hot. I know it's too hot, <laughs> but I know it because I've lived it. Yeah. And once you've lived it, you can't tell me anything, right? And that's the kind of, I think, fervor and passion and lived experiences that are going to be required because we're going to run up against some obstacles as we seek to govern. And if we can't remind ourselves of why we are here, mm -hmm. Amen. or why we are so fully committed to this work, if we can't re, uh, you know, access that in our hearts and in our minds and our memories and our family and our stories, man, we don't stand a chance up against the opposition who is prepared to be obstructionist. Yeah. We'll, have to, we'll have to tap into that to push past that. Uh, and so walk it like I talk it is what it is. And I'm not dancing up here on the stage because <laughs> my opponent's next commercial uh, uh, against me. I would, I, well, okay. Get at me. Yeah, Get at me. Ben, back on. Yeah, you know, the uh, back, back to the church. <laughs> Out of the M Miami clubs. Um, back to St. James Church in West Baltimore. <laughs> I was so surprised when you said Miami, how much of this crowd went crazy? It's a, like, it's ridiculous. Like, it's, it's, we're it's, like, it's hosted like by the 40 Congress miles woman. from Baltimore and like 450 miles from Miami. And it's hosted by the Congresswoman from Miami. Uh, yes, <laughs> indeed, 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 of course. The um, no, look, if there's a song that I'll be playing backstage, I'm getting ready to walk out. It'll be this little light of mine. What happened? It was the song that my mom sung to give her courage before she desegregated her high school. It was the song that my dad sung as one of the few white guys repeatedly jailed in downtown Baltimore in the efforts to desegregate the lunch counters in his jail cell. It's the song that I taught to the, many of the young staff of the NAACP who didn't grow up singing spirituals and movement songs as we stood at the center of the aspirations of the combined civil rights community in Maryland and a much broader set of communities in 2012, when we decided that that would be the year we abolished the death penalty, that would be the year we passed marriage equality, 
That would be the year that we passed the DREAM Act. That would be the year that we got gun safety reform. And despite every other state in the region losing its mind, that would be the year that we advanced voting rights even further. And we all came together and we declared the motto of the Three Musketeers, all for one and one for all, stretched beyond our comfort zones. And that year we became the first state south of the Mason-Dixon to abolish the death penalty. The first state to pass marriage equality. The first state to pass the DREAM Act, and we did all of them at the same time. But it was all of us bringing our little lights together. And I, whenever I stand on the first day of school shaking hands like I just did, did it last year too, I see those little kids and I just see my mom you know, walking in, just humming that to herself. She had to go past picket signs and protests just to go to high school. And if, I think if, it, if if we are known for one thing at the end of those first four years, it has to be massively increasing funding for our schools, making sure teachers get a raise. And I know as a guy whose mom was sued her high school when she was 12 to desegregate it when she was 15, that the one thing I'm going to get done as governor, if nothing else, is to make sure I finish that fight my mama started so that no kid is discriminated against in their education based on what zip code they're born in. Okay, so Ben, I don't know. I want to make sure I heard you said it's a musketeer song. No, this little light of mine. This, oh, this. little light. Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't hear he was turning that way. He was preaching that way. I didn't hear him this way. This little light of mine. So amazing grace that gives us this little light of mine will help us walk it like we talking. <laughs> and um, this has been amazing. Thank you all so much. We need you to make history for the culture. Uh. And we are with you. We are going to fight for you. Take it to the mat. Take it to the Twitter. Get at me, dog. And Make a contribution. Yes. Yes. Make sure you're registering voters before the deadline. Make sure you take folks to early vote. Um, make sure that you are speaking them up. Don't just take selfies. Make sure you post them on social media. Angela, can we give you our different websites so oh, yeah. people... Oh, yes. And we're going to do plugs with these websites so you all are very clear. Yeah. Uh, Madam Governor, thank you for that. Well, uh, Go ahead, please. So, uh, StacyAbrams.com. Early voting in Georgia starts on September 18th with absentee ballots. October 15th, we have three weeks of early voting, including a mandatory Saturday. You can learn all about this at StacyAbrams.com. Please visit my website. Thank nice. You. My, uh, uh, my website is AndrewGillum.com. Uh, please go and get $5. It's not a lot to ask. Or 500 uh, oh, oh, If you've got capacity for more, my mother is on an automatic deduct of $20 a month. And sometimes she goes down to 15 when she gets out of budget. Um, but that say that to say that it doesn't matter the amount. So a seed. Yes. We can't run these races on good ideas and hope alone. Yes. We need uh, uh, we need support. Early voting for us is 10 days out from the election. But we're encouraging everybody, even if you're a student here in D.C., but you live in one of our states, vote absentee. Encourage folks to uh, get their absentee ballots, turn those in, and then obviously vote early so that on election day you can move more and more and more people to the polls on uh, November 6th. Ben. My site is benjealous.com. As Andrew said, please come and give. Our average donation last quarter was $42. We take 0% of our money from big business or corporations or corporate PACs. 
We are the People's Campaign. We depend on your support. And I would encourage all of you, all y'all found your way to D.C. now. So I'm hoping you can find your way to Maryland the weekend before November 6th and help us push out the vote. But if you can't get to Florida, get to Georgia. The only way that this happens is we push the people out to vote. We vote, we win. Thank you're you. Here. Let's give another round of applause to our here. congressional host and All to right. these lovely people. Let's get together. Wow, what an incredible conversation. I hope that you all will continue to hit up Stacy and Ben and Andrew and ask them your questions about policy, where they stand on issues, and figuring out how you could just lean into supporting them. It's so, so very important. And most importantly, what you have to do um, as we get ready to get to November 6, 2018, which of course is the date of the midterm elections, it's a Tuesday, y'all, um, is you have to get registered to vote. This week, I am so excited to be a part of a very, very important initiative. It's called When We All Vote. It's a new initiative and a new nonprofit organization set up by Michelle Obama, who is a co-chair along with some of America's most trusted voices, including Tom Hanks, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Janelle Monet, Chris Paul, Faith Hill, and Tim McGraw. We hope that you will get your friends registered if you're already registered, if you will get your family registered if you're already registered, that you will just check with everyone around you to ensure that people are in fact registered. It's so very important. Right now, we are in the middle of the week of action um, where volunteers will host nearly 2,000 grassroots events all over the country. The purpose of the events is to recruit volunteers, to educate folks, to register voters, and to make sure that folks are vote ready for every single election, starting with this one, um, the midterms on November 6th. Um, Mrs. Obama had did headline the Las Vegas event yesterday. I headlined an event with Chris Paul on Saturday in um, Houston, Texas. That's where I was. And then there will also be events in Miami, um, which will be the final event um, on Friday, September 28th. And also ATL, there's an event featuring Janelle Monet where I will also appear at Spelman College. So I hope you will join us this Thursday from 3 to 6 p.m. at Spelman. And you all just keep following all of the updates um, coming from when we all vote. It's such an important um, initiative, as I said, and it's really, really important that you're helping to get folks registered. Um, please visit the website whenweallvote.org for additional information. Um, and shout out to a good friend of mine, Stephanie Young, who's doing yeoman's work with her uh, When We All Vote team. Um, Stephanie, we know that you're killing it and we're so proud of you. Nearly 27 years ago, Anita Hill testified about her horrific experiences in working with then Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas. In 2018, it's clear that despite a few more women in the United States Senate, 21 to be exact, the Senate has yet to develop a process and protocol for sexual harassment and assault allegations against nominees. While Dr. Blasey Ford is set to testify on Thursday, many of the conditions she requested were not met. This in spite of the fact that another accuser has come forward against Brett Kavanaugh, Deborah Ramirez, who attended Yale. Equally as important, Kavanaugh's record is horse shit. I'm not going to cuss. But the Lawyers Committee on Civil Rights issued a damning report on his abysmal judicial record on everything from reproductive rights to criminal justice to affirmative action. 
In the report, the Lawyers Committee says, Judge Kavanaugh's record raises serious concerns that he is predisposed to side with employers and businesses in disputes with employees and consumers, with law enforcement at the expense of defendants' constitutional rights, and against administrative agencies. In addition, his record also raises concerns about his positions on voting rights, reproductive rights, marriage equality, and other areas of core concern to our focus on issues involving civil rights. Finally, He appears unwilling to commit to ensuring that the judicial branch serves as an effective check against overreaching and abuses of power by the executive branch. If you still don't get why it's CAVA absolutely hell nah, here's this important exchange with United States Senator Kamala Harris. Judge, have you ever discussed special counsel Mueller or his investigation with anyone? Well, it's uh, in the news every day. Have you discussed it with anyone? Uh, With other judges, I know. Uh, Have you discussed Mueller or his investigation with anyone at Kasowitz, Benson, and Torres, the law firm founded by Mark Kasowitz, President Trump's personal lawyer? uh, Be sure about your answer, sir. uh, Well, I'm not remembering, but if you have something you're Wanna, Are you certain you've not had a conversation with I, anyone at that law firm? Kasowitz, Benson. Kasowitz, Benson, and yeah. Torres, which is the law firm founded by Mark Kasowitz, yeah. who is President Trump's personal lawyer. Are you? Have you had any conversation about Robert Mueller or his investigation with anyone at that firm? Yes or no? Well, is there a person you're talking about? I'm asking you a very direct question, yes or no. I, I need to know the, uh, I'm not sure I know everyone who works at that law firm. I don't think you need to. I think you need to know who you talked with. Who'd you talk to? I don't think I, I I'm not remembering, but I'm, I'm happy to be refreshed or if you want to tell me who you're thinking so about are who you, works. I, are you saying that with all that you remember, You have an impeccable memory. You've been speaking for almost eight hours, I think more, with this committee about all sorts of things you remember. How can you not remember whether or not you had a conversation about Robert Mueller or his investigation with anyone at that law firm? This investigation has only been going on for so long, sir. Right, I'm not sure I, do I, I, I'm just trying to think, do I know anyone who works at that firm? I might know. Have you had? That's not my question. My question is: Have you had a conversation with anyone at that firm about that investigation? It's a really specific question. I would like to know the person you're thinking of, because what if there's? I think you're thinking of someone you don't want to tell us. Hot damn! Don't play with Kamala, okay? So you all need an action item for this week, I suppose. So just in case the feckless GOP pushes forth the Kavanaugh nomination, here it is. This sister gives you the script you need exactly when you call your senators. You don't have to say anything more and you shouldn't say anything less. You call them at 202-224-3121 and you say just like this. Vote no! Be in your room! Vote no! You have a responsibility to all Americans! Be up your room and vote no!
Yep, it's that kind of week, y'all. One, work woke, and two, as always, resist, y'all. For all my children of the light, born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right. My people are warriors, all we know is to fight. Praying, they see God in everything I write. Yeah.